So here we go. Uh, Good morning. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I am looking forward to jumping into this. Uh, I uh, just have so much inside of me. This series has kind of was birthed actually in its infant stages 16 years ago. And I've been processing and thinking and kicking a lot of what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks around since that point. Uh, so I share that to say, I hope, I, I've learned in the past when I think about something for 16 years, by the time I communicate, people can sit back like, whoa, dude, settle down. Um, because it's just so much in me. So I'm going to try not to do that this morning. I'm going to try and present it in a way that, that you guys can uh, just take it and think about it and process it and hopefully it impacts the way you live. But I thought I'd share the story where it came from. 16 years ago, my wife and I were uh, relatively newly married. I had been at school in upstate New York at a two-year Bible school, had finished up my schooling, had worked on staff at that school for one year. Uh, that kind of year had expired, and Tanya and I had been married, and we're thinking, well, what do we do next? Where do we go? Do we? The school had offered for me to stay there on staff and um, work, continue to work, or do we move into, there was a church that offered a position to me. There are all kinds of stuff. So we chose to come back here. I say back because I was born in, and raised in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. We came back to Lancaster so that I complete my schooling at Lancaster Bible College. Uh, while we were there, the first thing we did is we said, well, we believe in the local church, um, wanted to be a part of the local church. At this point, I didn't know if I wanted to be a pastor. I just knew I wanted to make a difference uh, in the world at some capacity with the gifts that God's given me. Uh, so we said, but we believe in local church, so let's jump into the local church. And so we plugged into a church in Lit. It's a fairly large church. It was over a thousand people. Um, they, uh, it was the kind of church I grew up in and Tanya was new to it. And we jumped right in there and serving in the ninth grade Sunday school class, roughly 15 to 20 ninth graders that we met with on a weekly basis. We'd have them in our home and just pouring our lives and hearts into them and loving every minute of it. A lot of joy until one night when the phone rang. And when that phone rang, I picked the phone up and on the other line was one of the pastors at the church. And he says to me, "Um, hey, Adam, I want to talk to you about something that's kind of transpired and taken place. And I want you to hear it from us first instead of you catching it kind of secondhand from someone else. We're calling all all the youth staff and just letting them know that last night, the youth pastor, Denny Foreman, who you guys met, Those of you who were here a few weeks ago in our sex series, he was on our stage teaching. Um, So Denny was arrested for soliciting a male prostitute at Park City Center Shopping Mall. Now, when that was spoken to me, I I remember very little from what that pastor even shared from that point on. It hit me in the gut. The reason it mean the gut was Denny mentioned this. Denny talked about when a leader in the church, a paid staff leader, a youth pastor sins and doesn't just, you know, yes, we're all frail and we all sin. And I talk about that on a regular basis and it is what it is. But when a, when a leader um, sins in a way that they have been deceptive and hiding this double life for a long time and it comes out, it does such damage, uh, to, especially to teenagers. This church knows that. This church has lived that. This church has been a part of that. Unfortunately, too many churches have seen and been a part of that because they're led by sinful people. Um, Now, so that's the first thing that kind of hits me. But the second thing that hit me is it really got me in the gut because Denny was like a father to me. Denny had grown up around our kitchen table. I'd grown up around Denny, around our kitchen table. There was, we had a farmette, so to speak, and we had 400 tomato plants that we staked every one of them and suckered them and sold them off into the market. And we had potatoes and we had corn and we harvested all that. And we had a, about a hundred tree orchard of apples and pears and peaches. And so it took a ton of work to prune and to spray and to harvest that and sell those products. And so Denny was there to help us. And Denny was a babysitter to me. Matter of fact, the one I remember most vividly was when my youngest sister was born, she's nine years younger than me. Uh, She was born, it was on a Monday night. And I was at the age where I loved football. And Monday night was football night with my dad. And my dad says, hey, Adam, can't watch with you tonight because I've got to go to the hospital. Um, Looks like we're going to have a baby tonight. And so Denny came over and I watched football that night with Denny there on the couch. And Denny, I don't think even likes football, but he put up with it with me. Um, And I remember him tucking me in and saying the prayers with me before I went off to sleep. So he was so close to me, but I had never known in that in all those years growing up that he struggled in any way with homosexuality. It just was something that as he shared in his story, if you remember, the church leadership said, don't let anyone know. Keep it a secret. Big mistake, but that's what they told him. 
Now, so it was a shot to the gut. So we uh, come that weekend and we sit down with roughly 150 teenagers in a room and all the youth staff and some of the pastors are there and they're beginning to talk and there's kids crying all over the place and there's hurt and there's grief and there's betrayal and there's broken trust and there's what do we do? And and all these questions are getting asked and one of the youth leaders stands up and I put it up on a screen for her because I want to see what she said. She said this, his sin is no different from you stealing a cookie from the cookie jar. That's what she says. Now, right away, as soon as she says it inside of me, I'm screaming, no, 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 that's not true. Don't tell them that. But then almost in instant fashion, I feel a yes. Amen. That's awesome. Tell them that. I had this, this, and I'm like, what is truth? See, for I think what she was really saying was the smallest of all sins greatly separates me from a holy God. doesn't matter how big it is, whether I'm going home and stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and telling my mom or telling my dad that, no, I didn't steal a cookie and I'm chowing down on it and I got the crumbs all over my face and the sugar still in my, um, you know, no, I didn't, I didn't eat it. I mean, whether I'm doing that or whether I'm living a double life as a youth pastor, it's all sin and the foot of the cross, the ground is level. So I think that's what she's saying, but I went home that night and I began resonating. Is it really the same? I mean, that just defies human logic. Is that really how God operates? That if I tell a little white lie or whether I go out and commit adultery, it's all the same before God? And so that started a journey in me of studying and reading and thinking and processing. And I want to share that, the, the kind of the process over the next three weeks. And here's some of the verses. I think it was over a hundred that I could have, I just picked out some of the best to show you where the tension comes up in this. Uh, first one, it kind of resonates with me was John 19, 11. We're into the Easter season now. And uh, this is an Easter season story. And Jesus was arrested and um, Jesus arrested. And he's standing before this guy named Pilate. For those of you who might not know, Pilate was kind of the, the Roman leader who was put in place of Jerusalem to say, you're in charge of this area and lead as though these are Romans. And so, but he's got this problem with the Jewish people and there, there's this whole political mess going on and they hand Jesus over to him. And Pilate's like, this guy is innocent. He knows it. And he's wrestling and Jesus knows he's wrestling. And so Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, Pilate, I want you to know, I want you to know that those who have handed me over to you are guilty And this is when he says it, guilty of the greater sin. Greater sin? What does that mean? Isn't all sin sin and doesn't all sin separate? End of story? I mean, isn't that how it works? Uh, In Genesis 15, verse 16 was another one. And this is a story just to kind of, those of you may not be familiar with church, it's with a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham is this guy that God spoke to in a vision and said, I want you to leave your people and I want you to go to this land. It's going to be the promised land. And I want you to grow your family up there into a nation. It's going to grow large and powerful. And this nation is going to spread who I am throughout the world and bless all nations. Now, so Abraham is getting this message and, and God says, but I want you to know one thing. It's not going to be easy. And for 400 years, your people will end up in slavery in Egypt. And the reason it says in Genesis 15, 16, they're going to be in slavery is because the Amorites is the, is the group of people who are living in your land right now that I'm going to give you. The Amorites sin has not reached its full measure. I'm like, What? So God's going to wait until apparently it gets really bad. Or how does that work? What does that mean? Luke chapter 10, verses 11 to 13 is another one that jumped off the pages where Jesus says to the people that are gathered around him, he says, listen, you guys are rejecting me. It will be worse for you on that day of judgment. When you stand before God, then it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, pause. You say, well, who's Sodom and Gomorrah? Some of you know Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, in our Western culture, we have the word sodomy comes from Sodom. And it's, it's, that, it was a vile city, two of them. And um, God was going to wipe it out. And the same guy, Abraham's like, no, God, please don't do it. My nephew lives there. If we find just 50 righteous people, will you spare it? And God says, yeah, I'll do that. And they look, can't find 50. And they look for, they get all the way down to this tiny little number and they cannot find. It is a vile, wicked, horrible city. It defines and personifies evil. And God says that when you reject Jesus on the day of judgment, it says to these people who were, who in that first century were living with Jesus, it will be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse? I thought all sin separates. I thought, what do you do with that? First Corinthians 5 verse 1. 
the writer Paul writes to a church that's struggling with sexual sin. And they have, it says in chapter five, they have some sin amongst them that they're like, yeah, good for us. We've been loving, gracious, kind people, tolerant. We're just embracing all people. And Paul says, no, no, no. You've got sin amongst you that the pagans out there think is, is disgusting. So it's like this comparison. It's like they even think it's bad. And, and so he's kind of, and then he gets into chapter six and he says it. Having sex with someone who's not your spouse, it says in chapter 6, is a sin unlike any other. He says, because it is a sin inside your body and all their sins are outside of your body. And I read, I'm like, what does that mean? Isn't all sin sin? And how is this sin different than that sin? And what does it mean that it's outside your body and this sin is inside your body? What on earth does that mean? And so I began to wrestle with that thought. First John chapter five, verse 16. This is one where the Catholic teachings in this area kind of run from. First uh, John chapter five, verse 16 says that there is a sin unto death. And, and this one will give you fits. I honestly, to this day, have no idea what he's talking about. I'll just be very candid. I've studied this passage deeply and I've, I have all kinds of opinions, but I just don't know. He says, you will see people who are sinning that does not lead to death. I want you to pray for them. But then he says, some people sin that leads to death. Don't pray for them. He says, they're, they're done. Don't even pray for them. You're like, what? What does that mean? But somehow there is this distinction in a human level between sin. One leads to death. One doesn't. Pray for the one. This guy's they're just lost. And then this one I want to put up on the screen. This is another example of the kind of things I began to run across. I just want to show it to you actually on the screen. Uh, Proverbs 6, verse 30 to 33. It says, excuses might be found for a thief who steals because he is starving. But if he is caught, he must pay back seven times what he stole, even if he has to sell everything in his house. Okay, I want to pause right here before you read the rest of this. Don't, don't, go, don't, I know some of you are star students and are already reading down through there. Just hang on. Um, okay, so there's a thief. He steals. It's bad. It's not a good thing. But it's like there could be an excuse for this. He could be hungry. could be looking for food. But now he's got to pay for that. And here's the payment. The Old Testament law says he's got to pay back seven times what he stole. Even if it means he's got to sell all that he has. He's got to pay back. And then restitution is had. Peace has been made. Society is good. And we're all going to move on. Now, there's a contrast made. As some of you know, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 deal with the subject of adultery. So he makes a contrast between these two sins of stealing and adultery. So look at the rest of the verse. But the man who commits adultery isn't, now this is, these, these are hard words, is an utter fool. For he destroys himself. He will be wounded and disgraced. His shame will never be erased. What? That's not the God I know. That's not the gospel message I've preached for years. What does that mean? So if I steal, it's a little sin and I can pay back. But if I commit adultery, it's like, I'm done. It'll never be fixed. And you read the rest of the verses that follow that. It is just says, a lot of it is from a human perspective because the other person's spouse gets jealous and the rage will never go away. Some of you have lived that and know that pain. You're like, what? How do we wrestle with this? All sin is sin? (laughs) It doesn't appear that way. So when that that leader stands up and says, hey, his sin is no different than your sin of stealing a cookie from the cookie jar. I'm like, now, wait a minute. What do we do with this? Now, some of you will say, Adam, why do we even have to study this? Some of you are really engaged right now. Probably if you're really engaged, it could be because you're, you're just a scholar, you're a student. You're like, yeah, let's dig in, let's go deep, and let's get philosophical. And, and some of you are going, Adam, does this even matter to life? I mean, if sin is sin and sin separates from God, can't we just leave it at that? Well, here's what I want to just bear with me a minute. I want to give seven reasons, and I'm not going to get in depth. We're going to go into depth with these reasons in the coming weeks, but why this is really important and bears on your life. And I would be willing to bet that if you would sit down with your life group, if you're in one, or your family, or some friends, and talk, I would bet you can come up with more reasons. These are just the ones I thought of. First one, why this is important. I think to say that all sin is the same defies human logic. And what I have learned, when you defy human logic, you hurt your opportunity to reach those who are far from God. I can count many a times where I was on missions trips in New York City doing street evangelism, and I would run across someone, and, and uh, maybe a Jewish person especially, they, they were the ones that I'd run, really struggle with this, and they would say to me, so you're telling me my sin 
You're putting me in the same category because I'm separated from God. If you break one, you break them all. You're telling me that I'm on the same playing field as Hitler? What do you say to that? I would hope that there isn't a one of you in this room that's on the same playing field as Hitler. I think that's true. I hope that's true. I really hope that's true. But is that biblical to say? Is it biblical to say Hitler's over here and you're over here? Haven't we taught in the church that all sin is sin and and all sin radically separates and and Hitler and you? I mean, we're all one. You're good. I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. And I think when you go that route, it ruins your chance to share Christ with people because they're like, that doesn't even make logical sense. Next one. I think it sounds a warning to careless living. I think when you just say all sin is sin, just suck it up. It's all, all, all sin is sin. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. I think it's, it, it, boy, we get dangerous when we start doing that because I think we get careless in how we live. And we'll talk about that. The third one, I think it helps you avoid the big failures. Put them in quotes, big, because we're going to talk about kind of what that means. When you talk to Denny when he was here and you say, Denny, how did you end up at Park City soliciting a prostitute, undercover cop? How did you do that? It doesn't just happen, right? You don't just wake up one day when you're living great. I mean, it's all honky-dory and it's good. All of a sudden, you just wake up and they say, gee, I'm going to go to Park City today and see what I can find. Seldom does that happen. Typically, those who fall big time, there's seeds that have been sown all along the way, the little stuff, and we're going to talk about that. And I think if we don't understand how that works, James talks about it. It it talks about the temptation, how it conceives, how it gives birth, how it works a process and ultimately brings you to death. It's this whole, and if we don't understand the process, we end up dying a lot of deaths because we aren't paying attention to the little stuff back here. So that's another one that this comes in really important. I think another one, it strengthens healthy relationships. If you and I are going to have healthy relationships, boundaries are a key part of healthy relationships. Now, how do you know what boundaries to hold to and how you know which not? I mean, how do you know when the Bible says sin overlooks a multitude of sin, of, of love overlooks a multitude of sins? And how do I know when it says, okay, I'm supposed to confront? When do I confront? When do I overlook? I think this subject helps us with that. Now, this is something little. We can work on this. We can deal with this. This is big. You know what, dude? Husband, wife, spouse, friend. If we're going to have a healthy relationship, there's got a line here that we can't, we can't keep crossing. Okay, so I think it helps us with healthy relationships, very healthy relationships, I think. It helps us to understand a God of justice. We're going to unpack that. The biggest one for me is this one. It helps us reconcile God's total forgiveness with the existence of his discipline. I've wrestled with this for years. God, I'm totally forgiven. Then why am I dealing with this? God, if you've forgiven me, why do I, why do I have all this going on over here yet? And I think it helps us, and we understand this, it'll help us, and we're going to unpack that subject at length in the next uh, two weeks. And the final one, I think it promotes this subject, a safe and just society. Those of you who have traveled, especially in the third world, when you get into some of the countries, if you've ever been there, where justice is not, is not understood and there is not law and order and where there is not this understanding of you murder, you lose a life. You this, this happens, and there is the law and order is gone. What happens in those societies? Utter death and destruction. And you and I don't want to live there. We take for granted at times the, the fact that we have a country that understands and is built on, whether we can argue all day long whether it's Christian or not, but it's a country that's built on, this is a little sin, this is a big sin. This you get 25 years to life, this one you only get three years. That's an okay thing. And we're going to talk about that because when we live in a world like that, it helps greatly to sustain a safe and just society that ultimately brings life. Now, more on all of them next week. And I'm sure you guys can run and think of other reasons why this is an important study. But here's where we want to go this morning. I want to sound a very, very clear warning. When I began studying this, I went out looking to see what does the evangelical church, what do some of the leaders and throughout church history, what have they talked about in this area? I couldn't find hardly a thing. Hardly a thing written on it. And I'm like, why am I finding hundreds of verses that seem to indicate, why can't I find no one teaching on it? I finally found one evangelical that really seemed to talk about it more than others, and his name is John MacArthur. Some of you know him. I'm not a big fan of John MacArthur, but he's, he happens to speak on this a lot. 
What I found as I studied it, the why evangelicals tended to run from it is because the Catholic Church has, I mean, the Catholic, and we're, I want to differentiate. The Catholic Church has taught for years there's two different kinds of sins. You have your venal sins, which is basically saying when you die, there's purgatory. You're going to pay a price, and then you'll get in. And, and it's a sin that you can pay for, and ultimately good can come. Uh, or there's the mortal sin, which is saying, uh, they're all, they, you know what? You commit that sin. It's done. You're, there's no hope. It's all over. It's sin unto death. Now, so the evangelical world has said, no, the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. The grace of God is at stake. So I think many evangelicals just kind of shied away from this subject. But I want to, you know me, I sometimes don't shy away from things. Maybe I should. And I run towards things with reckless abandon. And so I've run towards this for 16 years. And I just finally said, this is so important. We need to talk about this more. But I want to sound the warning that they all sound. And that is. The smallest of sins in my life greatly separates me from a holy God. I don't care how big it is. The smallest of sin in your life greatly separates you from a holy God. Turn with me, if you will, to James. James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you're new to the church, new to the Bible, welcome. So glad you're here. If you grab that Bible in front of you, it's in page 1020. And if you were here last week, you know that we, we, these Bibles are new. We're so excited to have them. We had roughly 500 of them we ordered. And we discovered last week as Chris was up here talking, I'm sitting way back over there and he's giving his page number and I open mine up and I'm like, it's not the page number I have. What's wrong with Chris? And we let him preach? I mean, come on, dude. You can't even find your way around the Bible. Uh, so I come up to him to talk to him afterwards. And, and he says, well, no, that's the page I got. So he goes over and grabs the Bible. And I'm like, oh, my word. So it turns out we had 40 Bibles that were a di- an older edition sent in our stock of 50. So we've got them all out of here. <laughs> so everyone's on the same page now, <laughs> which is a good thing. Again, it, again, if you're new to the Bible, if you do not have a Bible, that Bible that you have in your hands right now is a gift. You may take it home with you. Um, James chapter two, look at verse eight. It says this. Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the Royal law as found in the scriptures. Now, some of you know the Royal law. If not here, he's going to give it to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the Royal law, the great commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is like the pinnacle of the commandments. But if you favor some people over others, they, this church had a problem. They were, the rich got special seats. The poor had to stand off to the wall and there was favoritism going on. He says, but if you favor some others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. So you show favoritism. You're a sinner. You're a lawbreaker. Verse 10. I love how the new living translates this. I think it's actually helpful compared to some of their translations for the person who keeps all of the law, except one is guilty as a person who has broken all of God's law. What? Are you kidding me? So if I violate one, I'm guilty of them all? Really? Now he goes on to say, he kind of gives an explanation. Here's this verse. Look at the start of this verse. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So here's kind of the heart of what this verse is saying. One God made all the law. One God. So get what it's saying. Sin then is saying, you know what, God, I don't like this. I think I'm smarter than you. I think I'm better than you. I think you're holding something back from me. I, whatever it might be, but I'm going to go and do this. I know you said not to, but I'm going to. I've placed myself in the place of God. I've kind of said, but one God set them all. So if I'm defying God, I'm just basically saying, I don't need a male God. I'm, I'm my own God. It's kind of what it's saying. Sin is defined as Romans 3.23 says, um, if you sin, you're separated it's um, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that's this picture of sin. You fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the heart this morning. What I want us to understand is this reality. I want to do it by helping us see how this God that we sin against, how big and beautiful and magnificent he is. Let's get our heads around this to do that. I want to start with this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. This one God that's given us all the laws and we pick out, okay, Hebrews chapter 12, this is a magnificent verse and it says this, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy, say this word with me together, with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Now, I mean, I want to state something that's not real popular in the evangelical church today. 
Something you may even wonder if we even believe here at this church. You say, well, holy fear. What is that? I'm to fear God. Yes, you are to fear God. Now, some pastors and theologians will say, well, all that really means is just respect him. Hogwash. That's garbage. I don't believe it. And you know why I don't believe it? Look at what it says. For our God is a what? Say it with me together. Is that just respect? I'm pretty afraid of a raging inferno. I've been around a few of them. They're not a lot of fun. They scare the pants off of me. Fire does unbelievable destruction and it consumes everything in its path. I cannot say enough that God is to be feared. We are to look at him and say, oh my, and you may even put some naughty words in there if you want. Oh my goodness, this is just crazy. Look at who he is. Now, the amazing thing is though, that's not where it ends. The scriptures don't leave us there. I'm going to show you a verse in a minute. I want to set the context for this one. This is the, the John is the author of what you're going to read in a minute. Now, John was a guy. I want to think of the context before you read this. John is a guy who was so close with Jesus. When he was on this earth, he described himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. When Jesus was dying, he looks down and says, John, here's your mother now, Mary, my mother. I want you to take care. Who do you leave your mother with? Just some bum you met on the street corner? Someone you trust and someone you love. And every time you see Jesus pulling away with just a few close friends, John is always with him. John, in 1 John, in his letter that he writes to the churches, he is the disciple of love. That's how he's known in 1 John chapter 4. He and Jesus were tight. They were close. They were intimate. Now, I'm going to show you a verse that Jesus now is connected with John. John is close to the end of death, and he's kind of transported in body to this vision. And he hears a voice that's behind him. And in this verse, we're going to read, he turns to see who's speaking. And look at what happens. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Don't miss this. Here is someone who walked with Jesus in an intimate way, unlike I think some of us would, don't even get. He was close with Jesus. And he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' resurrected body. John is still in a sinful, you know, he, he believes in Jesus. He's still got sin. And he sees Jesus and he falls to the ground as though dead. That's fear at its finest. I'm undone. This God is huge. This God is big. This God is holy. This God is great. And, and what can I do? Don't miss the next verse, the rest of the verse. But he laid his right hand, which has a lot of significance that I won't get into this morning. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid. I'm for you. It's this, wow, yet love. J.D. Greer is a pastor in in, um, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. I think he says it better than I've ever seen it said. All combined with intimacy is the essence of Christianity or Christian worship. This, whoa, I am undone, but you love me. This juxtaposition of just radical, wow, and whoa, I'm loved. I'm loved. Now, do we get this? Do we get this? Do we get the untouchable holiness and yet the tender mercy? His awesome size and he's just mind-blowing, but yet he's close and intimate. Do we get this? See, one of my fears is, is that Christianity as a whole, and I always get a little, anytime you're a pastor, oh boy, he's just going to lump us on. But one of the things I see as a whole is we have reduced God to a domesticated deity that we can explain and can control. The God of the scriptures that I read blows my mind, and I can't make sense of some of the stuff I read in here. It's like, Wow. Charles, I came across something recently I was reading. Charles Misner, he was Albert Einstein's, one of Albert Einstein's students. And he was writing and describing why Albert Einstein never believed in Jesus Christ. Some have kind of looked at Einstein as agnostic. Some kind of thought he was a full-blown atheist. Uh, Charles Misner had a front row seat to Einstein. He was close with Einstein. He learned from Einstein. He was one of his students. And here's what Misner, in his own words, I want to read them to you, what he said about Einstein. A brilliant man. The design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions. 
Although he struck me as basically a very religious man, Einstein must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen more majesty than he had ever imagined in the creation of the universe, and he felt that the God they were talking about couldn't have been the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt the churches he had run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. Think about that. Now, we don't know why Einstein didn't embrace Jesus, but here's a guy who had a front row seat and has an opinion. It's because as he engaged with churches and Christian preachers, they talked about a God and a deity that was small and could be controlled and could be explained away. And Einstein, unlike I've never, I mean, he's brilliant. He looks out at the universe and says, wow. And then he sits in their pews and says, that can't be. How can the God you talk about have done this? And he's blown away. He sees a magnet. I've heard it described this way. God is of such infinite perfection that even the slightest sin in his presence cannot be tolerated. The illustration I've heard is it's like a tissue coming up against the surface of the sun. Now, it's almost comical because the tissue can never even get that close. It would be disintegrated long before it got to the surface. But that tissue comes up against the surface and it's gone instantly. God is an infinite, huge, consuming fire. And what I've seen and I've observed, and this is J.D. Greer, I'm going to read, he kind of continues this thought. He says, we often think we have done God a favor by downplaying the whole idea of God's judgment. Our user-friendly God does not punish sin. He certainly doesn't send people to hell, but hell gives us a picture of the absolute perfection and beauty of God. Hell is what hell is because God is who God is. And we understand this magnificent God. And then I look in at the smallest of sin in my life. I think I am undone. The illustration that I've seen, it really is effective for me. I'm a child of the 80s. Born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. So I was kind of at, in my teenage, junior high years when Magic Johnson was kind of known, kind of came out of the closet and learned that we have AIDS and HIV. And that's kind of when I began to have my eyes open to this, this, this reality of AIDS and HIV that was worldwide and killing people all over in Africa. And it was touching America and everyone was fear-driven and running around. And I remember I was an athlete and played, I know I was an athlete, some of you can't say it anymore, but I love sports and I was all into that. And, um, I remember our football, uh, we had all this training. You get a little scratch on your skin, like even the littlest, tiniest scratch. You had to come, if the referee saw, you had to come out of the game. You had to keep uniforms. Um, if you have a little tiny drop of blood, you had to change the universe. All this fear. You've come up against this, you're going to get it yourself. Um, now, that's since been disproven. You aren't going to get AIDS and HIV that way. But I went online this week just to double check. How is it, how can you, and can it live outside of the human body? And I discovered that, yes, in fact, HIV AIDS virus can live outside of the human body. And with certain temperature liquids, it can live outside of the body. Now, so imagine, imagine you're someone right now who's thirsty. Maybe some of you are. And I say, here's a glass of pure crystal spring water. It's beautiful. It's designed to meet your needs. It will satisfy you. And you begin to think, I'd really like that. And I say, but you know what, before I give it to you, I'm going to take the AIDS virus. Let's put a few drops in there. Not a lot. Not a big deal. Like you can barely see it. Look at it. Just, I, mean, it's probably, I can't even see it. Those of you in the back, it's just a little bit, just kind of diluting itself down in there. That's all, just a little. I'm venture a guess. There isn't a one of you in this room that would come and drink this right now. Why wouldn't you? I could say to you, it's just a little. It's just a little bit. Come on. It's not a bit. The chances that you get it, I mean, it's just a little bit. You say, because it's contaminated. One drop is all it took to contaminate the entire glass. I cannot stress enough. One drop of sin in your life is all it takes to separate you from a magnificent, holy, all-consuming fire of a God. You cannot stand in his presence as a sinner. I don't know how to let that weight bear in on your heart and your soul. 
Now, as I've thought about this a lot, and I thought about the hope of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about here, uh, kind of shift the weight to his now. That, that's his consuming fire. I need to fear, but he moves and he lays his hand on me. I thought about this as I think about this. What this has led me to think, this is from my journal. I took a spiritual retreat recently. This is some of the thoughts that have just come out of me. And I've begun to realize I am first a sinner and only secondarily sinned against. Do you recognize that you are a sinner? Do you know that you let that weight push in on you? And that sin is far more offensive to a holy God than the sin that your parents, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, and go on a list have committed against you. And some of you have had some horrid sins committed against you. But your sin against God is far more offensive. When I begin to reconcile with this, I walk with you and I stop saying, oh, look at them. Look what they did to me. If they hadn't done that, I would not have done this. And if this hadn't happened, I most likely would not have done this. And I had to do that to them. I had to say that because they are who they are. No, I am a sinner. Start there. And when I can start there, I'm first a sinner and only second am I sinned against. See, one of the things I struggle with is we're going to talk about this series. One of the things that we have this tendency to do is we want to look in the mirror of other people's lives to determine how our own life is. Am I acceptable to God? Well, I don't know. What do they do? Look at that. That's horrible. I don't do that. Look at them. They're pretty good people. They love Jesus. I don't know anywhere near that. And we begin to compare and look at and, and, and analyze and think about, and we think, well, I'm pretty good. No, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. What kind of weight does God carry in your life? Let me ask this question. Do you fear him? Do you fear this all-consuming fire of a God? Now, some of you in this room are going, you bet I do. I'm scared to death, and that's where it ends. So the second question would be, have you ever welcomed his intimate touch in your life? Or is that all it is, is this fear that you run from and cower in a corner and hide? You know what happens when we hide? We go to dark places. And you know what grows in dark places? Garbage. I don't know anything that grows in a dark place that's good, other than maybe mushrooms. But I don't like them, so I'll, I'll leave it go. It, it's not good. We were out for anniversary this week, and I got to, we went to this really special restaurant. I got this steak, and Tanya's, they asked me, do you want mushrooms and onions? I'm like, no, I don't want mushrooms and onions. She's like, yes, you do. I want to share them. So I get this, and it's just this bowl of me. What are those? They're just fungus, slimy, gross. Anyway, I digress. That's... Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you're there in James, you're not familiar with the Bible, go back towards the front a little bit. Uh, it's page 936 in the Pew Bible. If, you're not, if you have that Bible there, Romans chapter 2 or page 936. Now, Romans chapter 2, let me set the context briefly. If you were with us through our series in February called Sext, One of the things that we talked about through that series is Romans chapter one and the reality that God says, I am huge and I am big and no, all humans are without excuse that they look out at the world and see this magnificent, all powerful God that creation points to. However, we as humans have this tendency to run after his creation instead of embracing him. So we take the good gifts that he's given us and we begin to live for those good gifts and just say, ah, God, yeah, you know what? I really would rather have the sexual romance or I'd really rather have the nice house or I'd really rather have the fame and the fortune. I'd really rather have this stuff instead of, and we begin to live for that. And God says in his love for us, he says, I'm going to step back and you are going to get what you get. And all hell breaks loose and it gets ugly. And it lists all these sins that come as a result of that. And and it's some ugly stuff painted there. And we talked about that through February. Now chapter two then picks up and it says, you may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that the God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others by doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the very same things? Let me pause here before we get to verse 4. So what ends up happening, we look out at others and we begin to not understand I'm first a sinner and secondarily sinned against. And I look out at others and I think, oh my goodness, 
How could you get in bed with someone who's not your spouse? All the while inside my own heart, I'm nursing lust. It may not be big lust. I may not be running to pornography and I may not be, but I certainly think some thoughts about that girl that's walking down the street or that I engage in the office or, or I may be, if you're a girl, I may think of thoughts about a guy that's not me. I'm, I'm engaging that stuff and inside my heart, I've got it. Or I may never have, you look out and think, oh, what a monster. Look what a murderer. What a vicious, terrible criminal. But all the while inside your own heart, you've got bitterness and, and anger. Or you may look out and think, they've stolen They've stolen people's livelihood as they've cheated and robbed in, the, in all the, you know, you look throughout the, the last 10, 15 years and see the executives and think, what horrible people. But here we are in taxis and making little changes and fudges or, or maybe, we are, uh, maybe we're secretly greedy and coveting all the stuff that I'd like or I'm thinking more about the house I'd like to remodel and, and, I'm, and we're no different. So it says, you look out at people when you make these judgments and you make these statements and you think these thoughts, but you're no different. Verse four then is the hope. I love, love, love verse four. It says, don't you see, that's what I want some of us to see. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Yes. Can you see that? Can you see that he's this all-consuming God, but yet in his kindness, it says in Romans chapter 5, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He moved in your direction because he knew you couldn't fix it yourself. He was kind and he stepped towards you. And it's only in his kindness that you will beat the sin in your life no matter how big or how small. It's not by setting up all the laws and all the rules and all the moral commandments. You're going to beat them. Matter of fact, I believe you set those laws and rules up and that's how you go about beating the sin in your life. It will only get worse for you. And you will soon hate the God who loves you. He says in his kindness, one of the things I loved yesterday and I see some of the family here and, um, my heart yesterday as I was sitting right down over here and Chris was up here and I heard some of the family members of Dave um, laugh. First service, Dave used to sit right back over there and, and I didn't know Dave really well. I only got to get to know him from a distance and a few times interacting with in his home and, and with the family. And, and I went home last night after the service. I said to my wife, I said, if and when I die, and there's a service for me, I want to be remembered like Dave was remembered. And I believe it was legit stuff. A man who loved well. A man who, when you drew into his presence, what I kept hearing about over and over is you just felt important. He cared about relationships. Do you know where that stuff comes from? It comes from a heart that says, I'm a sinner. Saved by the grace and the mercy of a loving God. And when I understand that I've been forgiven much, because that little tiny sin is hugely offensive to God. I've been forgiven much. You cannot help but get up off your feet and love well. The problem with your inability to love others is not, it's the fact that you don't understand how much you have been loved, how much you've been forgiven, the grace that's been extended to you, the kindness of God that has moved in your direction. And that kindness is what sets you free. You know, so many people think, well, Adam, if you just preach this message, if you just talk about this, this kindness of Jesus and, and don't get on the law that, that, that people are just going to go on sinning. The people that say that do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, he was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And he, he had a child who was crippled and he had a, had a wife who was desperately in need of care and the family was falling apart and, and there's all kinds of trouble going on and he's in prison. And, and as a father, I've learned that, you know what, you can say horrible and do horrible things to me, but when it starts to happen to my family, I second guess what I'm really thinking and standing for. And so John Bunyan's in that place and they come to him and it's recorded in church history. They said, John, you can't go on telling people that Christ's righteousness has been credited to them in full. If they believe that, they'll feel like they can do whatever they want. If you stop telling people that, we'll let you go. Here's what's recorded in church history of his response. Bunyan replied, if people really see that Christ's righteousness has been given to them as a gift, they'll do whatever he wants. I cannot say it enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Martin Luther said it this way. 
Martin Luther, who was a great reformer in church history, he said it this way. He said, listen, you never graduate from the gospel of Jesus Christ ever. See, I used to live in this church world that thought that you come into a relationship with Jesus by believing uh, in Jesus. You come into a relationship with God by having faith in Jesus. And that's where you start with the gospel message. But then you kind of graduate on from there. Martin Luther had it this way. He had a quote that he often was very famous. It was in his commentary of Romans. He said, to progress is always to begin again. To progress is always to begin again. This message, some of you may think, well, he's just preaching this to people that don't know Jesus. I'm preaching this to all of us, whether you know Jesus or you don't. If you're going to grow in your relationship with him, if you're going to overcome the dark sin, small or big, in your heart, it is not going to happen with the moral law. It's not going to happen by gritting your teeth and digging in deeper for more duty. It's not going to happen. It's going to get worse for you. Whether you've been to church all your life and you believe in Jesus since you've been five, the way you win the battle with sin is to get up every morning and to start again. God, you're holy. You're big. I'm a sinner. I'm far from you without Jesus in my life. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. To start again, to start anew to understand what you've been forgiven of and how that small sin was radically offensive to a huge and magnificent God. The smallest of sins in my life will greatly separate me from a holy God. You know, as I think about the, we're going to talk about these different sins, the big sins, the small sins. One of the things I'll just let out of the bag, the one sin that Jesus says he hates more than any other, do you know what it is? Pride. Can't stand it. If you're a person who's proud in heart, God says he opposes you. It's ugly. I don't want to be on that end of the stick. And I think about this, John chapter 3, many of you know it. I think it was one of Dave's yesterday when I heard one of his favorite verses, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The very next verse, Jesus came into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The chapter goes on, but men love darkness. So they hid. And again, bad things happen in dark places. Proud people run from this God. Humble people say, God, you're big. I see you. You're beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for moving towards me in the person of Jesus. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to walk towards Jesus Christ with faith and trust and value for him in my heart. We'll end with this question for you to think about. It's a question, again, I came away from my spiritual retreat processing and thinking about. It's, it's haunted me, honestly. It's haunted me, but also brought great comfort. And I want to share it with you and ask you to answer it honestly. Maybe some of you just need to write it in your journal and think about it or over the next couple of weeks. The question is this. How does God feel about you right now? Right now, in this moment, how does God feel about you? And not only do you got to give an answer, but I'd like you to ask an answer to the second question. And how do you determine that? You know, I was first challenged with this question on my retreat. And I thought about it and, and I kind of began to journal. You know, the first word that came to my mind, how does God feel about you right now? Disappointed. And I'll be honest, I began to write in my journal some dark things about not liking myself. I shed some tears that day. I cried. I thought about this. I thought, God, but God, I, I've done all these things. And in my heart, I've got this and I've done that. And I kept hearing the whisper, but Adam, Adam, you're a child of mine. You believe in Jesus, do you not? I do. Then I've credited you as righteous. Adam, how do I keep hearing this message? Adam, what do I think about when I look at Jesus? Why well, think you think accepted, approved, embraced, no condemnation. Adam, when I look at you, I see Jesus. And how do I feel when I see Jesus? So we smile. He does. So if your answer to that question, how does God feel about you right now, is anything other than approved, accepted, and loved, you've probably got some work to do. Now you say, but, but, but I'm a, such a sinner. I've done, you may have done some things. And he may discipline you, but it doesn't mean he doesn't love you, doesn't approve of you, and doesn't accept you. It means he does not condemn you. He is for you in the person of Jesus. 
And I think most of the reason we struggle to get this is because we don't understand how significant the smallest sin in my life really is. And it radically separates me from a holy God. When I get my head around that and then I see Jesus run towards me, I fall to my knees and I worship with fear yet intimate. I'm going to close this in prayer. As we do that, I want to mention that uh, we, this is the time, if you're new to the church or maybe not, um, this is the time where we move into this thing called offering. We have a time to worship God with your giving. Um, also the time when the ushers will come in a minute, they'll, time to turn your tear-offs. We'd love to hear from you when those tear-offs share prayer requests. As Chris shared, we've got a care team. We've got a prayer team. Uh, we'd love to just walk with you. So again, share your concerns there. Maybe a response to this message, something that's all laying heavy in your heart. You'd love to connect with one of us throughout the week. Um, but again, just say hello. Let us know you're there. And then also maybe share some things. Let me pray for us. Uh, and then we're going to just wrap up by singing one final song. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, I think of Romans chapter two, verse four. It says, um, your kindness leads us from sin. It's your kindness that gives us life and hope, not your condemnation, not your judgment. God, you're a huge God. You're a big God. You're a consuming God. You're a mind-blowing God. And God, me sitting in your presence as a sinner, I'm singed, I'm done. Yet God, in Jesus, in Jesus, you lay your right hand on me and you touch me. And you say, do not be afraid. God, right now, I know there are some people in this room that when they think of you, that's all they think of is fear and dread and terror. Maybe in the past, they've run from the church or thinking about running from the church. Maybe there's despair in their heart because they're sad and they're overwhelmed with the fact that they'll never please you. Maybe they're angry at you. They're not even sure who you are. It's all they see is that fear of condemnation. God, would you help them right now to lift their eyes up to see Jesus standing over their shoulder with his right hand on them? Would you help them to sense that embrace? And would you help them to know deep in their heart that you're consuming fire, but you're a loving God? You're big, but you're close. And God, would you help them to turn and embrace Jesus Christ right now? Maybe, maybe it's a person in this room that did that at age five, and I believe you're there secure in their salvation. But boy, God, they've forgotten and just lost track of your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Would they begin again right now? Or God, maybe it's someone who's never done that. You don't even know what it means to have a relationship with you. You don't even know what it means to be a Christian. You don't know what it means to walk with Jesus. And God, finally, I pray for our church. I pray that Bethany continues to be a place where we don't get lost with, yes, we help people live well. We help them make good decisions. We help them to um, make wise decisions that keep them from pain and hurt and follow the, the rules and the laws. But God, may we be a church that stands central on this message of Jesus Christ. May we be a church that doesn't attack sin with more law, but attacks sin with Jesus. May we be a church that embraces our community, not with a pointing finger of judgment and condemnation, but a, a finger of, I listen, I'm a sinner too. And let me tell you about a God and his kindness who walked towards me. May we be a church that does not get lost on all the other stuff that we keep coming back to and begin again with who Jesus is and that clear beautiful declaration of grace and mercy in the face of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a big God that can shoulder this world and certainly my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.